everyone and welcome to Shadow Light. Join us as we navigate the big issues on your feed, moving from apathy and overwhelm to collective action and hopeful pathways forward. This week, we're asking why is health only a human right if you're white? We're really interested in issues around health injustice and we wanted to get into it. Like, how do we get to this point where there's so much racial discrimination in like our medical system and being like, how the hell do we get here? What's going on? And how do we move past it and build health systems that are free of so much racial biases? Container also, this is a really huge issue. Like, there's so much medical prejudice for so many different communities, like queer people, women, disabled people. And like, we will be trying to like point out the intersections, but we're just focusing on race specifically here. But that doesn't mean that these are all like not super interconnected. We just really wanted to drill down into like medical racism basically and be like, this is a massive issue that really needs to be dug into more. And of course, the health justice movement addresses that. And we absolutely love that we're going to get to talk about some of the organisers who are doing some of this work on the ground. Yeah, get into it. (laughs) How have you been this week, Zoe? Yeah, I was going to say, what have you been up to this week? I literally can't even remember. My memory's so bad at the moment. What have I been doing this week? It's been bank holiday in the UK, so I've actually just been like having loads of fun this weekend and like not doing anything of note, just like going to the pub. <laughs> it's been really nice. What have you been up to, babes? Love it. I'm really in my art gallery bag this weekend. Oh, <laughs> like, God, okay. I, yeah, I, there's a few that's been on my list here in Chile um, that I've really wanted to just check out because Santiago has such a huge political energy. And so I've just mm. been like learning about some movements here through the art galleries here and I, I've absolutely loved it. So it's been a vibe. That sounds like a vibe. Really put me to shame. But yeah, I've just been at the pub. It's been the first like sunny weekend in the UK for like six months. And it's like everybody's out. Everybody's got their shorts on. It's really nice. It's like seasonal depression has cleared. We're all feeling good again. What's the weather saying? Is it really, is it hot? It's not hot, you know, like there's been a cold front as people keep calling it. So now I'm using that terminology. A cold front has come over the city in the past few days. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, it's a bit chilly. But the sun's always shining here, so, um, yeah, I can't complain. So So should we get into it? Like, what have you been thinking about this week? What have you been reading this week? What are the kind of questions that has come up for you when we've been, like, thinking about diving into this subject? So I've been reading a lot about where is the movement going, which has really shaped my thinking, because I think when I was going into it, I really thought it was going to all be about Big Pharma. And... A lot of the things in, you know, I'm going to get into the people's health movement and the health justice initiative and all that a bit later. But yeah, I just think it's made me think about the complexity of this, the range of things that we have to deal with, but how we need to see them all as interconnected. And so, yeah, I'm I'm really excited to get into that. I do still have some questions, though, because I think it's such a massive task to create this people-centered health sector that a lot of people are talking about. And to think about health justice in this transformative and imaginative way. So I think my question is around, like, if we're coming from such different starting points, you know, some fully privatised health systems, some public but being privatised in the moment, (coughs) UK, like some that are fully public, how do we come from people's very different understandings of what health looks like and then communicate the connection between the vision that, you know, some people are saying to share, but how do you communicate that on the ground when people are just like, I need a doctor now, I need this solution now. Like, how do we build this connected vision and make it really resonate with people? So yeah, I think I had a lot of questions, those questions that maybe changed while I've been reading, but I'm really loving it so far. What about you? What have you been thinking? Like Before I, before I get into it, do you want to like maybe just define what health justice means for people in case they haven't come across the term before? Yes, let's do it. So I think if we're talking about health justice, we're ultimately talking about a vision for healthcare that is about people-centred and liberatory approach to healthcare. So this is not just about, you know, oh, I need X doctor for this thing. It's about recognising the economic, social, cultural, political reasons for health injustices that we have around the world and then building something that is radically different from that. So thinking about the fact that a large proportion of the world's population still lacks access to food, to education, to safe drinking water, sanitation, shelter to their land and its resources, to employment and to healthcare services. All of those things are connected in health injustice. And so we have to address those things as we move towards health 
justice. So I hope that gives a bit of a, a bit of an overview. Me, I'm not an expert. But yeah, that's kind of what I've been reading about. And I hope gives a bit of an insight. And a lot of people talk about building a people-centered health center, people's participation for a healthy world. So yeah, we can get into a bit of more of what that means in a bit, but I hope that gives a bit of an overview. Yeah, and I think like that kind of leads on to the bits of things that I've been thinking about, which was like literally just looking at the history of medical racism in the UK and the US specifically, because I think a lot of people have heard these facts, like black women in the UK are four times more likely to die of pregnancy and childbirth than white women. Looking at COVID, all ethnic minority groups in the UK had higher risks of dying from COVID, the white British majority. Like all of these things have become like really starkly clear. And it's like, what are the logics and histories that got us to this point? Like, this isn't happening, like, randomly. Why do we need to be mobilising around health justice? How did we get to this point where this is such an important issue? Like, where did these biases in the medical kind of, like, industry and the science come from? And it's been so interesting. I've been looking at the work of, and I hope I pronounced this right, Udadiri R. Okwandu, who's a PhD student, who's been, like, kind of looking about the history of medical racism in the West and who looks at kind of, like, the histories, the like really dark histories of unethical medical practices, specifically related to like racial relations, to be like, okay, that's what we don't want. How do we actually build medical and scientific institutions that don't reinforce racial injustice? She's really listing all the sins to be like, if we're actually going to build something better, we have to know what's been going wrong. And it's been so interesting. Like, it's so interesting. So I wonder if I should just like get into it. Do you know what I mean? Yes, please. What's your question? Like, what do you want to get into first? So I guess, where did this all come from? What are the logics? What do we have to expose? The logics that we have to expose to understand, like, why these things are happening? Because I was like, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. Like, do you know what I mean? It's like, yes, we know that, like, racism is very present in our society. But, like, how is it being so specifically utilised in medicine? And what's that, like, dark relationship? What does that really look like? And I guess my question kind of changed because I kind of thought it was just going to be about kind of like white supremacy in medicine and it is about that but it's so interesting that it really tracks back to religion and so she's done some really interesting work basically this PhD student so her argument basically is that the racial inequalities that we see today is due to racial biases that are rooted in science basically which is like something we've heard before she talks about scientific racism which is the use of scientific authority to justify racial prejudice racial discrimination and notions of racial superiority so like using science to be like so that's why being racist is right And then medical racism. So they're kind of two different things, which is like the prejudice and discrimination in medicine and the healthcare system based on an individual's race, right? So that's kind of those things that we were talking about earlier. But she basically tracks it all the way back to 18th century scientists in Europe and the US who were like basically trying to find a way to justify slavery. So they were like looking for like scientific and religious evidence to prove white supremacy to be right. And it there were this kind of debate amongst like physicians and scientists who had these kind of two schools of thought that were all around like Adam and Eve. So like one of the schools of thought is called monogenesis, which was looking at the book of Genesis. And I'm going to say right now, I haven't read the Bible. So like, I don't really know much about this. People who have read the Bible, correct me on this if I'm wrong, but she talks about how Noah cursed the bloodline of one of his sons for a life of enslavement and blessed his other two sons. And while actually in the book of Genesis, these characters are never racialized. over time, the symbol of Ham, who was the son that Noah cursed, became associated with blackness. So people could justify their racism against black people as black people are the descendants of like the cursed son, basically. So it's like moral to be racist, basically. I know. And it's like we're doing like God's, it's like God's truth to be racist, basically. And the other one, which is kind of this idea of polygenesis is what she calls it, which is basically these like scientists and medical practitioners were being like, white people are descended from Adam and Eve, but black people are in fact actually descended just from the other animals that were in the Garden of Eden. So it's like white people are like descended from like, you know, these holy biblical characters and basically being like everybody else is from the animals in the Garden of Eden. So like using the Bible to dehumanize basically black folks and people of color to reinforce white supremacy. Yeah, just taking shit and running with it just because they were, like, trying to find reasons to make their racism, like, be a moral thing. I know, it's fucking wild. Um, (laughs) But then, basically, these theories became, like, the basis of scientific inquiry. So all these schools of eugenic thought. But it was basically just railroading all of this science into, like, searching for more evidence to, like, prove white supremacy. So it wasn't like, oh, let's, like, you know, look at lots of different people. But it was like, what can we look at to prove what we already think, which is that, like, white people are, like, superior. So that's how we got into like eugenics, you know, pseudosciences, which suggests that bumps on a skull can predict mental traits. 
which we use to justify racist beliefs through like comparing skulls of different racial groups. So like Charles Caldwell was this scientist that said black people's skulls suggest they have a natural timidness and stuff like that. And like there was Samuel Cartwright, who was a doctor that like came up with basically he like made up a disease that was like if enslaved people are freed, they'll get this mental disorder called drapetomania. So it's actually really like nice of us to keep people enslaved because we're stopping them from getting this disease, basically. And so we need to like treat enslaved people like children have boundaries. And that's actually really like nice of us because otherwise they're all going to get this mental disorder drapetomania. So it's like people are just making shit up, like unbelievable. And it's just like medical and scientific institutions just, just like making up shit, basically, and weaponizing their institutional power to reaffirm racist beliefs and be like, look, you know, this is scientific or like God intended it. And just to serve to rob black people of, of their autonomy and humanity and legitimize racist treatment. So that's kind of like where it's all rooted. And then it kind of snowballs and she talks about a couple of like standout cases over history where we can see how medicine has been utilized basically to dehumanize black people but also where medicine has just used black people's bodies as disposable, as like test sites for improving medical care for white bodies, basically. One of the most famous ones, which is just so harrowing, like trigger warning for just horrible stuff, is J. Marion Sims, like you may have heard about him, called the father of modern gynecology. And so he's known for pioneering solutions to vaginal fistula, I think I hope I pronounced that right, which is basically a gynecological like thing that happens when an opening develops between vagina and another organ, such as the bladder or colon or rectum. And when that happens, there's just like a really high chance of stillbirth, basically. So basically 90% of women who develop it end up delivering, ended up delivering a stillborn baby. So his contribution was that he was practicing medicine to try and treat this. But the reason he was doing that was not out of the goodness of his heart. It's because in 1808 in the US, Congress banned the import of enslaved people, basically. So the value of enslaved women shoots up because you can't import more enslaved people for your plantations. But if you've got female slaves, what you can do is make sure they have babies and then enslave their children, right? Mm -hmm. So the value of enslaved women shoots up because they're able to reproduce. But like vaginal fistula was considered a huge problem because it was like causing lots of stillbirths in enslaved women's communities. So it was like, this is a cash cow, basically. If we can figure out how to solve this, then like we can generate more value from our enslaved women. So yeah, well, he wasn't doing it because he was really nice. And so basically he was practicing basically his tests, his test surgeries on black women, but wouldn't give them any anesthesia. So these enslaved black women were being operated on without anesthesia, sometimes like 10, 20, 30 times so that they could kind of figure out how to have enslaved women reproduce more, but also so that they could give it to white women. But the white women would be on anesthesia, like would have anesthetic when they had it. And so it was basically rooted in his like this racist belief that black women don't feel pain and pain and suffering was like needed for Sims to kind of perfect his technique. And so, yeah, it's just this he was just using kind of black women as expendable subjects to experiment on for white women and for profit off of enslaved women, basically. And there's one of his patients, patients is the wrong word, but like the women that he operated on was her name was Anarka and she was operated on 30 times in between two and five years with no anesthetic. And, you know, he's now called the father of monogynecology. So like held up as this like symbol of medical progression and like, you know, women's health. So many black women's bodies were seen as expendable in order for, for him to do that. It's just, yeah, like really this horrible. Is, right. I knew about the practicing on, on a black woman without anesthetic, but it's weird how, you know, all of these things are white supremacy is caused, but then to, to hear the court of cassidy again is like mm. still so harrowing. Like it's crazy. Mm. Like... To feel like someone's body is just an experimental playground. To what extent do you feel like all of this is when it comes to health and like, I guess that all of the things that you're raising about these histories has been about the proximity of certain communities to death. And in this, I guess in this case, black and brown communities and their proximity to death and to disposability. I think that's the root of it all, right? It's like we're figuring out ways that we can create logics in order for us to dehumanise black people so that then we can utilise their bodies for whatever we want. So, like, all of these logics of, like, religion and science, it's like, it doesn't really matter what it is. It's like, how can we reinforce this idea that black people and people of colour aren't human so that then we can do whatever the fuck we want? Creating these kind of, like, yeah, these logics of disposability, these logics of superiority for white people. Yeah, I mean, it just feels so, it feels so rooted in. And you have to like wonder, like, 
you know, is there ways that we can improve the medical system as it is, or do we need to build something entirely new? The way that medicine is practiced is just like this long and also quite invisible, like lineage of like oppression and exploitation. Like, do we just need to like start again? And I know that's like, we talk about this a lot, like, can you reform or do you need to build something new? But it feels like when you, again, I'd heard things about some of this medical racism, but when you like see the names and you see the photos and you see that like, it's like, I don't know if you can reform this. Like, do you know what I mean? It's so insidious. Can you reform this? I don't know. That's kind of what I want to get into is like, where do we go from here? Because it's really rough to think about the degree to which you have to position someone as literally not human in order to do these things. And as you touched on at the beginning, it's not just when it comes to black and brown people, this has happened to particularly so disabled people. Like Mm. I was thinking about the kind of distancing from their humanity that takes place in order to justify some of the disgusting things that have happened in our health system. Like, you know, the LGBT community, if we think about the HIV pandemic, all of the things that happened to distant, and that, again, equally so with black and brown folks in the global south who were just Mm. all seen as disposable. The response to health systems and health challenges today is so linked to all of these historical injustices that you're talking about the way that we think about health under capitalism is that health is the responsibility of the individual and therefore if you are unwell specifically if you're unwell from a group that's already marginalized that is your fault it's a moral issue and that you know those arguments have been weaponized against classic fat phobic weaponization of an argument it's like it's your fault if you're sick and it itemizes health as the single thing and if you are singularly responsible for it and it's like We can't have a productive conversation around health if we still think like that, because obviously health is an ecosystem. Health health is collective. Like you can't be healthy if you live in poorly ventilated housing or you don't have access to fresh, healthy food or if you don't have access to green spaces to exercise or if you're living in areas where like there's much higher air pollution, which we obviously know you can look at cities all across the UK and all across the world like working class communities of colour are going to be living in the most highly polluted areas of the city. How can you have a conversation around health being individualised when there are all these systemic impacts that impact our health every day, but then moralise people? It's like your fault. Like, it just is it's all so mm-hmm. entangled. And I think what health justice does, it gives us a lens to start thinking about all these interconnections. But it's really hard to have a productive conversation around, like, around health when we think about health as just being like, you need to quit smoking and then you'll be healthy. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, there's so much more to it. And I think what I've loved about some of the stuff I've been reading, as well as what you were saying about like classism and racism and fatphobia and all of those things being intertwined, it's also been thinking about war and Mm. how does refugee status, how does asylum seeking status, how do these things, how does climate breakdown, how do these, how does people being put in precarious positions by systemic issues that are often originating in the global north or being further perpetuated by the global north cause further health problems for those Mm. in the global south. And Mm. time and time again, we're seeing black and brown bodies Mm. put through the ringer and Mm. black and brown health put through the ringer because of decisions being made by largely white people in the global north. So that's also for me, like, it was really eye-opening when I was doing my reading because, of course, I see, you know, war, violence, conflict, natural disasters, those disasters that are being fast-tracked by climate breakdown as really crucial issues that we need to be thinking about. I don't think I'd necessarily thought about them in relation to health. And I absolutely love that some of the literature that I've been reading from organising communities gets into the fact that, you know, ending occupation, ending war, Mm. ending violence is part of the health justice movement. Like, to situate it in that way, I think, is so Mm. powerful. This really links to, like, and this is something we'll be discussing in a couple episodes' time, which is our episode which is kind of looking at who has to die in order for us to have an iPhone, basically. And, like, we're all, like, super aware that, like, all of, you know, the supply chains that we, all the products that we access, all of the things that we consume, the supply chains, these international supply chains where the labour is outsourced to which country ever has the least kind of labour protections. For us to own the tech and to own the clothes, whose body's on the line for that? Who is working in these places where it's basically a form of, of slavery? where you're in proximity to hazardous chemicals, your body's put on the line every single day, you're working unbelievable hours, you can't have a day off, and you're told that if you don't work like this, then you'll be destitute. Like it is, again, it's black and brown people. Specifically, like in that episode, we're going to be talking about in China, but 
holding these supply chains to account is again, it's a health justice issue. I think the other thing that I found really interesting from Akwandu's research was she was looking at not just kind of how medical racism used kind of black bodies as test subjects, but also she looked at how medicine was weaponized to depoliticize the civil rights movement, which I thought was a really interesting thing that I hadn't really thought about before. And she was talking about in the 1960s in, in the US, there's like obviously these rapid social changes happening, right? We've got the civil rights movement, organized protests to full on riots, racial solidarity, black power, black consciousness. And like white Americans at that time were associating strides for black liberation, like whether it's through the media or politics, of this black liberation with like social unrest, basically. And there were these two Harvard doctors who were key in basically constructing this idea of civil rights protest as senseless violence, using their powers as like doctors and using the power of medicine and science. And so they published this paper in 1967 called The Role of Brain Disease in Riots and Urban Violence. And they basically, their argument was, we're focusing too much on like socioeconomic indicators of writing. So like poverty or lack of access or an opportunity and education. That it's not really about that. It's actually biological factors. And so their argument was that like it was actually about a brain disease. They were trying to associate people fighting for black equality with them having a brain disease and being like the people who are writers. It's not because of the socioeconomic conditions, the racial injustice that they're experiencing. It's actually they've all got a brain disease and they were given £500,000 by the United States Justice. And basically using kind of medicine to associate the fight for black equality with brain disease. And this is the quote that he said. We're talking about being socially cost effective. If you can work out a way to define, diagnose and treat and even prevent a problem, you're going to save a lot of money. Obviously talking in the language of money, using medicine to depoliticize the civil rights movement. And that kind of got spun, became hugely influential in the way that white Americans were viewing the civil rights protests at the time. And like kind of where we are today, like I kind of mentioned it earlier, but like higher rates of COVID in ethnic minority communities, black mothers more likely to die from childbirth, black people less likely to receive treatment for pain because many doctors have been taught or hold on to a belief that black people are less likely to feel pain or they're less likely to be given pain relief because there's this idea that if they're given pain relief like opioids, their black patients will abuse that. And so there are these legacies of racial and medical biases that are like so built into how doctors are taught how medical school works it's like it's like it's really insidious it's like i think a lot of people will have seen the stuff around the textbooks about how doctors don't know how to treat skin diseases on black patients because the only pictures in the textbooks are on white people and they look different on different skin so they're just like black people obviously going to get less treated and there it kind of operates again yeah and so the kind of the summary of kind of this is like to that as well yeah people were like oh but it's just medicine it's just following medical rules i'm like please be so for real like (laughs) there are different outcomes because of the medical racism that is literally being taught to young doctors that it's just crazy but sorry no it's a question of education 100% I do think that like changing how medicine is taught if we're talking about where the like key levers for change are that's a big one like changing medical schools having a broader like conception of health having health justice and these kind of like much broader understandings of what impacts our health taught by doctors and having more diverse people write the fucking medical textbooks that's doable like that is a doable thing is to change how medicine is taught it is it's doable in theory but then like when i was a su officer hashtag student Mm -hmm. movement (laughs) we were working on a decolonization campaign and this is back in like 2018 and we were fighting for a kind of a pilot of this campaign where you would actually remunerate students to do this work and so we were like okay we want to do it across four really different departments we had like classics like history blah 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 and then we were like we want to do one in medicine and everyone just was up in arms about the idea that you would decolonize medicine they were like you can't do that like it's just medicine like I think the reaction was so visceral to the idea that there is an issue in educating medics but it was just so hard it took so much time to cut through and yeah I don't know it's just uh, it feels like people have a real issue of it do you think that's because it's that thing again where it's like well it's a science is objective like a science is objective so it's not affected by racism because science is truth right there's no way like is that do you think that was what the the vibe was like people hate the decolonization agenda anyway like as people call it but like I think they can stomach or un- at least understand why it sits in like English or history. Mm. But then when you move over to science and specifically medicine, people are so up in arms. Like I think it's just this idea that 
we have created something that is above any of these nonsense words, these nonsense critical race theory things, you know? Like, they just think that you're trying to bring gobbledygook into something that's really serious. Yeah, it's very interesting to watch people kind of foam at the mouth over the idea that medical teaching is racist. It's so interesting that you've got that, like, experience of, like, getting that pushback and people being like, medical science is an objective truth, and it's like, who wrote these truths? Who wrote these truths? Who died and was injured in order to make these truths possible? Like, to even know some of these things. And, like, where do you go from there? But, I don't know. Anyway, shout out to Narielle, who was one of the doctors at my uni who really helped make that a thing and did loads of research on what medical students were learning, and which made the case for why we desperately needed to decolonize racism at my uni. But, yeah. Shout out, Ariel. We'll have to get you on. We'll have to get you on so you can educate us about what's actually happening. Because I was just saying, yeah, it should be, it's, I was actually laughing. I'm like, well, yeah, it probably should be really easy to like, yeah, decolonize medical education. And then it's like, no, it's incredibly difficult to do any of this stuff. People are campaigning all the time for these changes, it but is, it, it feels is. like something tangible. Like sometimes it feels Not like the stuff like there's no tangibility to it, but like that is something tangible that needs to change now. I guess the like kind of last thing that I looked at was just talking about COVID as like a kind of like a recent case study, and I looked at this article from the Harvard Gazette, basically saying, with COVID spread, racism, not race, is the risk factor. And kind of exploring how racism affects the spread of COVID-19, basically. And they said, Mm -hmm. society blames persistent health disparities in black communities on personal choices rather than reflecting on effects of institutionalized and systemic racism and social and political economic disenfranchisement. And they basically just kind of draw on the history of environmental injustice in the U.S., in like the 70s and how communities of colour, specifically lower income communities of colour, are going to be more exposed to polluted air, water, land than those in white areas because they're much more likely to be living near landfills, oil fields, waste sites, factories, toxic pollution, areas with high automobile traffic near like main roads because dirty industries and government were met with much less resistance to putting facilities and roads in neighbourhoods where the residents aren't part of the decision-making processes. So it's like the reflection of kind of the racism within the government and decision-making processes then has a direct impact on the health of those communities. And it's kind of just talking about this in relation to COVID. So public health experts were saying that those with racial disparities have contributed to higher rates of respiratory and cardiac conditions. And those things put COVID patients at high risk of hospitalisation or death. So basically, those who live in regions with high levels of air pollution are more likely to die from the disease than people who live in less polluted areas. And so basically, they looked at a load of papers and it was like, Long-term exposure to air pollution increases vulnerability to experiencing the most severe COVID-19 outcomes. And also other environmental factors contribute really heavily to this problem. So like living in crowded conditions forced by poverty, made social distancing impossible, lack of healthy food options, problems with access to medical care, a greater prevalence of complicated conditions such as diabetes, heart failure and kidney disease. Also, like if you look at kind of like from a labour perspective, we know that essential worker positions where people were much more exposed to getting COVID. And in the US, where this, mm. these studies were being done, workers of colour, particularly women of colour, overrepresented in so many of the service sector occupations. So that exposure to COVID was much higher. And also because they lived in polluted areas, their likelihood of getting like the worst type of COVID was much higher as well. And so it's just kind of talking about how all of these things contribute to health. And it's just COVID is such a clear case yeah. study of how it's not just about like, Whoever catches it, catches it. It's about all of these things contribute to the level of exposure you're getting and the level of severity that you're getting and the likelihood that you're going to die from it, basically. And I just think, yeah, it speaks back to that point we were talking about earlier, that in the West, we have such an individualised lens on how we understand health. Your own health is something you're responsible for. And therefore, when it's depleted, you've done something morally wrong. You are to blame. And it helps eclipse the state from being culpable in our collective health and well-being, basically. It's basically Mm. saying it's not our fault, it's your fault. When actually health is collective... The state is responsible for the health of its citizens. These ecosystems affect our health. Infrastructure impacts our health. And we need to be holding our government to account for these health disparities that we're seeing, like this medical racism, the unequal impacts of these diseases like COVID. The government has a massive role to play. And I kind of think this probably leads on to what you've been working on, which is that health justice gives us a lens to see the racism and biases within our medical system, but also how health is about how we need to think about constructing our society, basically. Yeah, we can't just think about it over here <laughs> anymore. It doesn't work like that. So yeah, I guess I'll pass it to you, babes. What have you been, what have you been reading, what have you been talking yeah. about? No, you're so right, though, because I think COVID really demonstrated and I think woke a lot of people up to the fact that this is so interconnected with everything. 
And I think especially the vaccine rights um, and access to vaccine struggle, like, made a lot of people sit up and think, maybe there's a bigger issue here. Like, maybe our global health systems are rooted in colonialism. Like, maybe we should take a look here. And essentially, this is what health justice movements and health justice community organisations have been trying to say for the longest. And I think of, you know, I've been reading about the health justice initiative in South Africa and the work of Fatima Hassan and the Cape Town call to action. And I'm going to get into that in a second. But also the, the people's health movement in the US, which, you know, I think has some really interesting learnings around like movement building in this. And then also things like just treatment in the UK, which I think a lot of people don't necessarily know about, or at least I I didn't know a lot about it before a couple of years ago. Yeah, so I think that leads perfectly into talking about what is the movement saying about this? Like, where do we go from here? Because really, when we're talking about health justice and the people on the ground who are fighting for health justice, it's really about positioning health as a human right. As you were saying, and this is not about it being about personal interests, it's about it really being seen as a universal concern. And like everyone shares this responsibility. States have to (laughs) share this responsibility, as you were saying. And I think this is also about rights to access to healthy food, clean water, sanitation, housing and shelter that is actually adequate for humans to be in, steady employment, proper health information, all of that good stuff. So what I really want to share from my reading is about what was happening in South Africa. Because there's been this thing called the Cape Town Call to Action, led by people's health assemblies in South Africa, that has really been like a a bit of a catalyst for the People's Charter for Health, which is part of the People's Health Movement. So yeah, let's get into all of that. So yeah, starting off in South Africa, as I say, this is really the People's Health Assembly, which is this flat structure, this really transformative way of building a shared vision for the health movement. But let's let's rewind a little bit. Let's set the scene for what the health situation is in South Africa, because I think that's important to know if we're talking about the movement. Now, please, I don't know if I'm the World Bank, but research from the World Bank found that, like, Basically, the top 1% of South Africans control 70.9% of the country's wealth, while 60% of the country's population collectively controls only 7% of the country's assets. So I'm saying all of that to say that basically the economic injustice in South Africa is super high, but that is also really still split along racial lines in a post-apartheid situation. So it's both economically and racially very divided. And I think that's important to note because it almost serves as like a microcosm for the world. And I think that's one of the reasons that like South Africa has been such a, a big proponent of the health justice movement. But so where South Africa has seen this and seen how along racial lines, along class lines, a lot of people have been exposed or disproportionately exposed to things like HIV and AIDS, to what they call, and I don't quite understand this, but communicable disease, non-communicable disease, and then also violence and injuries as a result of violence. Like People have then been able to, I guess, address the fact that social injustice is inherently interconnected with health injustice. And so I've been thinking about the solutions for how we don't just tinker at the edges, but actually grasp at the root of this health injustice and thinking about what are the people-centred health sector and people's participation for a healthy world in South Africa look like. As I say, a lot of that thinking really, really deepened like, and was a catalyst for this people's health movement and the charter that then came from that. So, like, obviously, the framing of this movement is all on, like, people-centred and people-centred health. And so I guess, like, when we look at our medical system now, if it's not centred on people, what's it centred on? Like, what are they framing it differently as to what it is now? Wonderful, wonderful question. Okay, so from what I've read, again, I'm not an expert, but from what I've read, (laughs) what I can understand the current basis of the global health system to be is to be an economic and profit-incentivised health system. So a lot of the the chart actually talks about like the alienating function of the neoliberal health system and the fact that the needs that are shaping the health system as it is are essentially 
capitalist needs rather than health needs. So it's talking about like political, financial, agricultural, industrial policies that are shaping the health system, but not from the point of view of, oh, we need to create this solution to this health problem, but how do we push the greatest amount of profit into the hands of the owners of Big Pharma? So it's essentially been reading about like Big Pharma lobbyists and the fact that like when it comes to the health system as it is, that the bottom line is the bottom line. It's like their bottom line and their profit incentive that is driving a lot of the healthcare responses that we see. And I think it kind of links to what you're saying around the COVID impacts. I think it can also be quite hard to envision that from a UK positioning because we don't see it as clearly, I think, because we have a public healthcare system. But ultimately, like within the global healthcare system, you can't shy away from the fact that like, the priority isn't healthcare, it is how do you extract profit from the fact that people need this healthcare. I guess also linked to that, it talks about, the charter talks about the fact that like, it's not just that side of things where economic policy is really tied to healthcare. It's also about like the withholding of particular drugs and particular knowledge. So for example, like if you look at the just treatment movement, They're really tackling Vertex, which is a big pharma company who have a monopoly on cystic fibrosis drugs. It's really striking to me that one of the core things that Just Treatment has to say as a movement, and the message is really, really simple, is our health should always come above the interests of private corporations. But like, as things are at the moment, like there are patents on life, essentially, and there is like biopiracy of traditional and indigenous knowledge and resources as well. So like essentially people saying, oh, I know that you knew that for hundreds of years, but like I know it now and I'm going to make that my personal knowledge and I'm going to profit from that knowledge, which is disgusting. And like shout out to Just Treatment because as of now, they've currently submitted the petitions to governments in South Africa and India and Ukraine and Brazil to suspend or revoke Vertex's patents. So hopefully... That comes through for those who need those drugs when it comes to cystic fibrosis. But that's just one example, I guess, of like how this functions. And I think it really clearly demonstrates how this system is not about it's not about health. It's about profit. And we know that racial capitalism and the way that it functions means that that all disproportionately falls on the shoulders or rather the bodies of black and brown people. But of course, this impacts people who are working class. It impacts the poor far more than like any of those who can afford private healthcare. The access to these drugs, the access to this knowledge and these resources regardless. But what I also think is interesting about the charter and about this vision for like a, a people-centred health sector is that it also gets into problems around kind of colonialism and racism it gets into problems around environment it gets into problems around violence so let's jump into that more as well so um yeah like one of the other problems that this charter raises is like the colonial neoliberal economic system and how it negatively impacts global healthcare that way so it talks about things like cancellation of third world debt and radical transformation of the world bank and the imf and like completely disrupting the economic system as you know it as necessary for health justice, which when you say it like that, it feels like, obviously, but I don't know. I think in my head, I hadn't necessarily linked those things in such a connected way. Like it was really powerful to just see it stated, like, obviously we have to cancel world debt in order to deliver health justice. And then it was talking about like, how do you even think about health justice without addressing the fact that, like, millions of black and brown people's lives and livelihoods and health have been impacted for literally centuries because of colonialism. And there's never been any... What does it mean to look at reparations? What does it mean to think about like that and the impact on health? I thought that was really interesting. And then social and political challenges. Like, they also talk about, like, the need for everyone like full participation of people which I thought was a really interesting framework for this like how do you make sure that all of us have agency over all of our health I don't know about you but I feel like sometimes health feels like something that's like I'll leave that to the doctors or like leave that to someone who's smarter than me 
<laughs> but like one of the really big things in this charter has been about like how do we and this charter spans across 70 countries it spans across thousands of organizers who have contributed to this and to this movement and it's not just about like doctors nurses healthcare professionals it's also about the people and like how do they exercise demands and accountability over those who are have power in the healthcare system which i think is really powerful it really reminds me of kind of like the evolution that the climate movement has seen of being like, you know, mm. listen to the scientists, this is an issue, like this is an environmental phenomenon, this is a scientific issue. And of course, big up to all of the scientists who have been pushing for climate action for, you know, like decades. But like us coming to realise that like health and climate are not just scientific issues, it's deeply political, it's deeply about accountability, about justice, about governance and decision making about participation and like it kind of reminds me of like the citizens assemblies extinction rebellion pushing for citizens assemblies to make decisions around climate which i think at first people were like no this is like it should be just the experts and the scientists but no it's like it's the people's issue it doesn't exist over here in like an echo chamber like a microcosm it's like very much integrated with everything that we we experience and see in our society super interesting the parallels between the two that's so true this is ultimately what we need when we're talking about like building different and a better world like is that we all have to be part of the solution because when you feel that like alienation from the solution it's almost like oh someone else will fix it or someone else will come up with something better or like but it's like why can't we like we as a collective think about what we need like we are the experts and we are the knowledgeable people in our own lives and our own communities and there's also a really like localized focus on this, even though it's like a global health movement. I love that it has really localized focus. So like, you can literally go and like look into specifically in countries, in regions, and then in communities, like what is going on on the ground. It's really, really, really cool. So would recommend a little look if anyone's interested. But yeah, I think what you said there about the connection with the climate movement and the similar ways of organizing also really heavily links to what they're saying about climate in the health charter which is ultimately that we've got a huge problem here when it comes to like the impact of climate breakdown on disasters the frequency of disasters but also on the consequent injury and displacement that people experience because of climate breakdown so like they're seeing this directly as a health justice issue so it's not just intertwined because of the ways that we need to organize it's intertwined because of the fact that like you cannot have health justice without addressing climate breakdown which I think is a really powerful message to send because then it's like okay let's be so for real when we're talking about climate this isn't go back to the polar bears like this isn't about like something that is situated far away from us this is like really impacting the health outcomes of people like we've already talked a bit about the impact of air pollution and so on but also thinking about rising water levels and the very real impacts that will have on on health injustice who is actually going to be able to be healthy both physically and mentally when the very real impacts of climate breakdown are literally here coming for us I don't know why, but this really reminds me of like what Mia Motley, the Bayesian prime minister or from Barbados, because a lot of people don't know what Bayesian means apart from Bayesians. But yeah, it's just talking about like how a lot of the countries that exist now, nations that exist now, like didn't exist when the UN was set up. She said this at Ungar like a few years back, the UN General Assembly. And like a lot of those countries are the ones now fighting for their existence because they are feeling the impacts of climate so much more in the global south and like, i just this is the same it's the same wheelhouse of issues because of climate because of neocolonialism because of all of these things like folks in the global south their health outcomes the impacts of climate on their health outcomes are just so much worse and it's actually disgusting to think about like how much we're not talking about this. I don't know. I, I just, yeah, reading has just made me feel quite disgusted, actually, with the fact that I haven't seen a live enough conversation about this in our movements. Mm. Um, and how do we stand in solidarity around this? And I just, to like, add on that, like, I think, you know, like, it's happening in, like, because I'm based in London, I'm based in the UK, like, it's happening here. Like, people always talk to me and say, like, because I, I work in climate, like, when's climate change going to happen? And it's like, if you look at 2019, there was 900 excess deaths from the 2019 heat waves. 
who those people mm. predominantly were were people living in unventilated social housing, people who had pre-existing health conditions or disabilities, old people and young kids. So it's like the way that climate is already impacting the UK is very, very much through health injustice. And I think it's insidious because it's quite invisible because people think of climate change as being like a flood or like da da da. And it's like, no, our, the way that our temperature is changing, those who are already marginalised health is being put at risk. But we just don't have, as you say, the conversations are live enough. We don't have the language to be able to see these intersections because it's too com- it feels too complicated for like our policymaking processes to be able to handle, really. Tell them again, honestly, I, it's so true. I think the other interconnected thing with that is like, this charter is trying to deal with so many issues, like from the short term to the medium term to the long term. It's so ambitious in wanting better in the here and now, but also recognising that like there is so much in the current system that just cannot be reformed. You can't just play with it and you can't just move this around and hope for the best because of this, like, as you say, it's insidious. It's so seeped into the system that people are seen as disposable, that, you know, those lives aren't seen as a loss. It's just seen as, oh, well, like, that's a shit. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, no one is, that's not in the news. It's not being talked about. It's not being acted upon because it's just seen as this, like, you know, it's, it's par for the course in so many ways and this is again goes back to what this chart is saying about the alienation of the individualization under this system but yeah sorry let me let me not get let me not get too far into this little section let me um tell you a bit more about some of the other bits unless you had something no crack on crack on sorry for interrupting and then okay so one of the other issues that this charter raises around as i was saying violence so it's talking about the impacts of war and conflict on health outcomes and it very, like, with no hesitation, states that we need full-scale disarmament in order to deliver health justice. It also says that we need to deliver the end of occupation. But it also sets out that we need independent people-based initiatives to declare neighbourhoods, communities and cities areas of peace and zones free of weapons. This covers so many issues. It covers the occupation of Palestine. It covers guns rights in, in the US. So many things are swept up in in this piece, which I think is really interesting. But ultimately, like, when you think about it, they are all interconnected. Like, the use of weapons, uh, the use of violence, and the way that that impacts health and who that then impacts is so, so important. Like, I mean, particularly in, in this moment, because of everything going on, my thoughts are with those in Sudan and those fighting for freedom in Sudan. And I just think about, how can people who are fighting for their lives be thinking about health outcomes in this moment? It's such an impossible question. But I think the charter really perfectly explains why it has to be a consideration for all of us. Like, if we're serious about, like, health outcomes and the vulnerability that things like violence and conflict cause for health outcomes. So I say all of this to say that, yes, this is about, like, connecting very localised movements. It's about spanning across these 70 countries. It's about raising the voices, particularly so of those in the global south. But because it's so wide ranging, like it essentially says that health justice and building a people-centred health sector is about everything. Like It connects literally every facet of our lives from economic challenges to social, political challenges, environmental all of it is connected into ensuring that people are healthy. But on the flip side of that, it means that there's so many facets of, you know, the, the policies and processes that are shaping our lives and shaping our governments that are leading to health injustice. And so it can no longer be seen as this like separate, disconnected, you know, standalone area. It has to be seen in tandem with literally everything else. I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned from reading around this. And I think it's probably the most interesting thing, the uh, most striking thing for me around all of this. But yeah, I don't even know where to jump to next because I feel like I just dropped a, a bit of a bomb on us. Or for want of a better phrase, I think I just dropped a bit of a like <laughs> mic drop moment on us. Well, it wasn't me, it was the movement. And I'm just literally relaying what I've read about the movement. But yeah, so that's how like the South African movement has really shaped the global movement. I think probably the other things that I would want to talk about is like, where does the movement go next? Because 
as I said at the beginning, I feel like we're coming from such different standpoints on this. For me, it strikes me as difficult to communicate on the ground. How does one struggle connect to the other? How do we see this is a joined up, united movement. And I didn't necessarily come across an answer for that. Like, I think this charter is very, very ambitious in doing that. And you can tell that the people who are heavily involved in this can absolutely see those links. But on the ground, what does that actually mean? And what does that look like? Didn't necessarily find my answer. But I'm really glad that it posed that question for me because it almost feels like a challenge. There are so many amazing groups like really working at these intersections. Like, I will lie, like, I hadn't really thought about health in this kind of expansive way until I saw some speakers from Health for a Green New Deal just talk extensively and so clearly about why health is a climate issue, climate is a health issue, and how, when we're mobilising around a just transition. And, like, there's a big, you know, there's a lot of energy behind the climate movement, like, generally like across the board in the UK anyway people agree that climate change is real and we should do something about it and there are people working super hard to make it clear how this is a health issue as well and really like doing the work to like articulate these intersections in a clear tangible way and I think that helps both sides because people can feel really overwhelmed I think by climate because it feels so distant from many people at the time whereas we all have an understanding of health we all have been unwell we all know people who have been unwell And so it almost gives a point for people to hold on to. You know, if you live in a country like the UK, like the impact of war can sometimes feel so distant, when actually like health can be a good starting point to get people to understand, okay, this is my body, this is how it's impacted and how spanning out from that, all these things are interlinked. But yeah, you're right. Like these are big questions about how, how do we make space for these complexities? But I I don't know, I'm finding it really energizing, like sharing all this stuff about the movement. Like they've just done such amazing work. There's always people on the ground doing the work. I think that's been the most energising thing as well, to know that people are there, people who really believe that something better is possible and are, like, working towards it. It's just so beautiful to see. It just makes me think about, like, how do we connect up these movements in a better way? Because how did I not know that they were out there? Like, do you know? Mm -hmm. Obviously, part of me would, like, think that that was happening in some, like... I don't know, in the back of my brain somewhere, but I wouldn't necessarily, if it wasn't for this episode, have sought that out. And I think, like, so much about our lives under capitalism, under racial capitalism, is very alienating. And, like, even within our movements, I think often we reproduce that. So it's like, okay, if we're talking about, like, the very real impacts of climate breakdown in the UK, how do we then think about, okay... Where does that interlink with the impacts of climate breakdown in, I don't, I don't want to pick a random country as an example, but country Y, and like, how does that then link to health implications for people in the UK, but also people in country Y? I don't know why I picked Y and not X. That's really <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> so I just don't know. Like, I know we're asking a lot of ourselves, but I think the challenge that we have ahead of us asks a lot of us, right? And, like, going back to what they were saying about participation and full participation, they literally call the participation of the people of the world, which I just love as a phrase. That requires all of us to be thinking about this and to be active on it. I would love to start seeing more of those conversations live and active in our movements. So, yeah, like, even thinking about, like, when I was reading on the Just Treatment stuff, you know, it feels so silly just to, like, sign the petition, but, like, I obviously did that. And, like, then I was like, oh, is there anything else I can do? And I started, like, following some groups and stuff, you know? Like, it's just, it's been really nice to feel like there is a way to connect in or at least just listen to and learn from those movements that have been submitting petitions into governments in South Africa, India, Ukraine and Brazil. Yeah, I feel like there's so much of this, which is like, yeah, obviously, it's massively overwhelming to try and figure out how we like articulate these like incredibly complex intersecting issues. But there's something so liberating by acknowledging health is a collective struggle, is a collective mm. effort. There's something so liberating in being like, we see how bad the world is and being like, no, but I'm a part of this system and what I do, how I spend my money, like the things that I buy. I'm not out here saying that like individual action, you know, can change these systemic issues, but it we are agents of change within the systems that we live in and the actions that we have and the choices that we make impact our global collective and us as a global collective for our health and like just thinking about that you're like well okay like (laughs) 
if enough of us give a fuck, like, you know what I mean? Like there is power in individuals coming together to ask questions of these systems. Yeah, I feel like liberated in a way in thinking about it through that framework. And I do feel liberated as well in really like having to, there's something liberating and being forced to really question these assumed truths that we have, like this idea that the medical science is completely objective and like we can't question that and being like, no, like we can trace these histories back about how medical research is totally dependent on how it's funded and what's profitable and what kind of the dominant ideology is trying to reproduce. And like, I'm not saying we need to get our tin hats on and be like, forget all science, but we have to start questioning truths that are being forced upon us and being like, no, we can have a healthy discussion about how science is and medicine is weaponized in order to oppress some people and hoard wealth for others and still be like, we're not tin hats here. Like, you know, nothing is without critique, nothing without question. And like, some of these truths are so, what's the word? Like, it's so inbuilt to not question them because by questioning like medicine, by questioning these kind of institutions, it feels like you're being like a bad person because it's like, you know, doctors and nurses, but it's like, we're not talking about the doctors and nurses, we're talking about big farm, we're talking about the monopoly that it has over healthcare that where people are losing their lives. And just, I feel like these are really healthy conversations to be had. And it really reminds me of us, of like, the popularization of, of abolition and, you know, broad swathes of people being forced to question, like, the police and the criminal justice system, which just felt like such mm. assumed truth for so many people. It's like, how far and, like, how much more mainstream now abolition is compared to a few years ago because of the Black Lives Matter movement is unbelievable. And, like, we can only hope the same thing for this health justice movement and, and waking us up to the realities of these systems, which are like, we've been told that this is the way that things have to be, but this isn't the way things have to be. And there are people building, not just critiquing these systems, but actually building alternative ways of doing like, that's powerful as hell. I just, yeah, I just yeah. hope that we can even think more radically about, like, what it means. Like, as you're saying, similar to, like, the abolition movement, what does it mean to situate, like, or at least begin to, like, model, like, what does healthy healthcare look like beyond a profit-driven health system? I think that that is more complex because, obviously, medical care is something that is so serious. But how do we start that by talking about access to water, sanitation, housing? I think the housing one, for me, is also particularly interesting, like, because that is often, again, seen as its own separate thing. But, like, of course, housing and healthcare are inextricably linked. Because if you don't have safe and, you know, warm, clean shelter, like, how can you have any, like, proper health outcomes, like... It doesn't make any sense. So I don't know, I think even something around that and, like, I would love to see, is there anyone trying to create, I don't know, housing, like, a housing justice campaign that's, like, linking to health justice. Because even in my, I don't want to call it research, that sounds so serious, but, like, reading, like, I was really trying to find, like, more stuff that was interconnecting things, but obviously it's hard to know what you don't know. And, like, but I just think framing it in, in this way, like, it feels like there is so much potential to link people's really basic daily needs into a broader movement. It really kind of reminds me of the work of the Black Panthers in like meeting the immediate needs of the community when it came to like the free breakfast club for children. What is the need? People are going hungry or they're struggling economically when it comes to food. Can you meet that need? And then can you use that as a point at which you then bring people into the movement? I feel like there's something similar here. Like, can we think about, like, where are housing movements and, like, renters' unions and community unions can then start to talk about, like, the impact of health, impact of poor housing on health, and use that as a springboard for connecting into, like, the broader movement? I think you're really right. Like, I feel like housing is such a like, tangible way for us to have a conversation about so many of these things which interlink. And the home, the house is a way to see all of that. Like, we know that housing is a tool to combat climate injustice because if you have decarbonised, healthy, safe, warm, comfortable housing, you're bringing down, like, your emissions from your buildings. You're also fighting wealth inequality and especially if those homes are accessible then you're starting to have a conversation around ableism and then you know what I mean it's like there are these like there are these groups mo like mobilizing and there are these things like homes like houses where it's like it all comes together it does all come together just for the right for people to have a good life <laughs> like a good life and like 
it means addressing all these intersecting things. I guess we've talked a little bit here about what gives us hope and what's our action for this week. But I guess what is your your action for this week, Larissa? Or like, what do you think we can take forward in a meaningful way to kind of contribute to the movement here? Well, I love this question and I love that we're going to be asking this question every time because it really makes you think about like, okay, what am I doing? So I am definitely going to be looking more into the People's Charter for Health and the groups that are organising around uh, the PCH. There is a call out from the People's Health Movement to endorse the Charter. They called upon individuals but also organisations to join the global movement by endorsing it and then demonstrating it within your community how the work that you're probably already doing connects into the People's Charter for Health. So I'm definitely going to be taking that to the folks that I organise with and just explaining what it is, how it connects, and hopefully maybe even linking up with or connecting in with one of the other groups. Organising around this, um, as people might know, at the moment I'm in Chile, so there's definitely amazing things going on with the agricultural industries here. And again, the policies around agricultural industries are very interlinked with this movement. And what's the driver of those policies is very interlinked with this movement. And so moving away from profit-centred to people-centred and seeing that as part of this, I think would be amazing to connect up the climate justice and health justice work around these sides. So that's my action. And what gives me hope, again, is just definitely what's going on on the ground. But I think specifically for me, the solutions around Rejecting patents, I think, is just a huge one for divorcing the power that Big Pharma has in this space and uh, moving towards something far better that actually centres the rights of people because healthcare is a right. So I'm inspired by that lens and by the people working around it. But yeah, Zoe, what are you thinking? Like, what's inspiring you? What are you taking away? I feel like the, all of the organising that you've been doing, it's, like that you've talked about today, I've just, yeah, it's so, it's always so amazing when you're like, damn, like people are busy and people are doing stuff. And like, I'm also going to be checking out all of the resources that you've been looking at so that I can clue myself up. Because I actually, one of the things I'm feeling most hopeful from is now feeling more informed to have this conversation with other people. Like this has been a total masterclass for me in like really understanding the the legacies of racism and, and the ongoing issues within our health system. And it feels like a conversation that, like, you can have with people that you might not normally, like, might be really difficult to have a conversation with them about climate injustice just because they think that that's, like, woke <laughs> woke agenda, like, nonsense. Like, health is something that older relatives who potentially might not always be open to having these conversations, they are concerned about their health. And then that's such an interesting, like, leverage point to then open up to a discussion like this. And I feel way more informed to have those discussions. But I'm also really inspired by, like, the points that you were making around housing. And I was just thinking, like, I've just moved back to London and I'm a member of London Renters Union, hoping to get more involved with my like local group. And because I've just been beefing my estate agent so much because our house is a shambles. And I'm like really excited to take some of these questions and these thoughts that we've been having around how housing is like a really interesting place to have some of these conversations into that group and into that space and see what are the opportunities for kind of talking about it, mobilising around it. Like what does that look like in this space, in like my local context? So I think that's going to be my action going forward. It's exciting, man. It's so interesting. But I do feel so energised by all of the action that people are taking all over the world. And like, as you say, it being really globalised, but really localised. It's like, that's hard to do. That's really hard to do. That's some good campaigning right there. I think that really, like, we've got to wrap up somewhere. So that leads us on nicely to kind of what's happening next week. And I'm actually already so excited because I'm, my brain is buzzing from this conversation and how it already links to so many of the other discussions we're going to be having. I think particularly our con- the conversation that we're going to be having in a couple of weeks about Apple, iPhones, the dark history behind tech. There's so much that is like so linked up with that. And I'm really excited to kind of explore those, those intersections more in detail in that episode. So check that episode out. But Larissa, what's happening next week? Tell me, tell me. Next week, I was speaking to some amazing organisers all about food sovereignty. And I think this is so exciting because within the health chart, the People's Chart for Health, they actually talk about the importance of, you know, people-centred agricultural policy and the impact on health. So it's just all so interconnected. And I think getting to talk about food sovereignty with some people who are on the ground doing the work, know what this is all about inside out, like 
could not be more excited. So yeah, definitely check out the next episode to hear more about food sovereignty. And really like, who gets to decide where our food comes from, why? And what does agency over that mean? Like, we're gonna get into it next week, don't you worry. And as always, let us know your thoughts, feelings. If you've been involved in any of this, we'd really love to hear your thoughts about some of the questions that we still like might not have the answers to. So like, let us know, let's crowdsource some other actions, let's crowdsource some like other things that we need to be looking at and thinking about in relation to this. So yeah, excited to hear from people. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us on Shadow Light this week, guys. Have a great week. See you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. If you've got thoughts, feelings, critiques, resource recommendations, all that good stuff, we really, really want to hear it. So defo comment on the Insta, shadow.mag, or hit us up on our new Gmail, shadowlightpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to be really nice, you can subscribe to us on Apple and Spotify podcasts or give us a nice little rating. And we would love you for that. Thank you.